God in heaven, we thank you for the sober reminder, but the encouraging reminder uh, that we've just had in our first session that you place a higher value on our day-to-day decisions than we do because you know how much of a benefit um, they have in the long term and when it matters most. And so I just pray you'd bless us now as we reflect upon some more practical application of this. And um, again, as we're seeking to know how to best live in the midst of crisis and how to prepare for crisis. So we ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm just going to kind of summarize some stuff that we talked about, kind of recap, make a few applications. I want to tell you two stories uh, from my own experience that have given me courage and consolation in the midst of um, crises and knowing what it is that God is trying to do to prepare us uh, when we need help the most. Uh, That have just been actual life stories from my own experience that confirmed to me uh, that God truly is going to help us, um, that we're not on our own. It's been such a blessing. So... The way that you and I can stand at the end of time, the way we can stand then, is by giving God our decision today. Right? That's the point. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, they didn't become somebody different in their trial. They were who they were the day before when they had to turn in their homework, right? When they had to do their taxes, right? When they chose to wake up and have time with God or anything else, any of the responsibilities. And the decisions that I make today make me into the person that I will be then. So what I do today prepares me for my faithfulness then, right? I'm investing in my faithfulness then by being faithful today. Um, First, uh, this should humble us and encourage us. First, because God seems to place a higher value on my day-to-day decisions than I do, right? We think, who cares? It's just one class. It's just one thing. It's just one day of devotions. It's just one this, one that. But second, because God seems to have, that humbles and encourages me that there's, there's a solution here, right? That God offers uh, strength to succeed in my day-to-day decisions because he sees that those prepare us for who we will be then. But second, the reason why this is humbling and encouraging to me um, is because it seems to me that God has more faith in my ability to stand at the end of time than I do. Do you catch that? God seems to have more faith in my ability to stand at the end of time than I do, else I wouldn't be living in that time, right? You would not be living at this time in earth's history if God did not believe that you could stand. And just take a moment to appreciate that. God did not set you up to fail if you were alive by God's providence at this stage in earth's history when all of us going to hell in a handbasket and falling apart at the seams. If God has you alive at that stage, it must be because he believes that you can stand. Because he believes that you're going to make it. Because he believes that you can succeed. You with me? That God's not slack concerning his promise. He's not willing that any should perish, right? That's not the experience he wants for you. And so these same lessons apply to our character development, right? That Jesus day by day is making us into someone that we could not become apart from Jesus. There is never a day in your life where you're not going to need Jesus. There's never a day. There's never an experience in your life that you're actually prepared to handle without Jesus. Hey, you you can get, you can maybe be able to stumble through or whatever, but if you want to be a person of excellence, if you want to be a person who makes morally right decisions and succeeds when it matters most, you need Jesus. You cannot succeed without him. And... Many people are freaked out about this idea of perfection. We've already covered this in our class on last generation theology and in other areas, that God has promised to do that work of transformation in us. Our responsibility is to stay in the soil, if you remember that illustration from Christ's object lessons, right? That you can be perfect at every stage of development. Our job is to stay in the soil, to stay surrendered to God and ask him to mold and shape us into who we need to be day by day. God, I surrender my choices for this day to you, and I ask that you would empower me to live a God-honoring life as I work, as I do my chores, as I babysit, right, as I do my schooling, whatever. And if we yield our day-to-day decisions to God, we don't have to be afraid anymore. There's no reason to be afraid because he's in control, right? He's the one who's empowering us to succeed. And you can stand for Jesus on the plain of Dura when everyone else bows because you've given him your heart, 
you consecrated yourself to him for that day. And you gave him yesterday's decisions, and the day before that, and the day before that. You've been developing a lifestyle, a habit, a train of thought that continually seeks power and wisdom from God. That's the point, okay? So you'll be able to tell the popes and the prelates that God is going to fight for me in this situation. But even if he doesn't, I'm still not going anywhere because God has been good to me. God has been faithful to me, and I, I would rather die than sin. I would rather die than dishonor him because he's been that good to me. Yes, Lexi. It's funny that, um, I, I, I like that you mentioned that, because it's funny that God does amazing things in our lives, and God is doing stuff in our lives all the time, every minute, every second. Literally just living is, is a blessing, and something that God's doing in our life. And it's crazy, because I love what you're saying as well, like, you know, because they were saying, you know, God, you've done so much in my life, and so this is the, so even if you, you know, even if I don't, even if I die, you know, if I live, you know, I will do this because you've done so much in our lives. But I think we, we even, at least this just, thought came to my head, at least for me, it's easy to forget that like, I'm like, oh, you've done so much in my life, or like, you really helped me through this hard situation, you helped me through this, but I forget what, like, what, like what I said before, like, but I forget like, like, breathing, and my family, and you know, friends who love me, and nature all around me, you know, my favorite things, you know, like my favorite food and stuff, like God has blessed me with that, and he blessed with me all the time, and it's important, I think, to remember those little things as well, because it really helps us like, get a better picture, and a bigger picture of this like this wholeness of what God gives us and to make us even more empowered to stand up for him and to give her all for him. I think it is more peace as well because God's saying, Hey, I'm with you in every single aspect of your life. And so I like that point as well. Yeah. That you don't have to wait until a crisis to recognize that God is at hand, right? God forbid if like the only time that Jesus is seen next to me is when I'm in a literal furnace, right? It's not that Jesus wasn't with them except for when he was in the furnace. He was always with them, but he made it clear to the people who were trying to persecute them that, hey, he's always been with them, right? Yeah, I saw your hand, Moose. Um, and so I think that that's, that's something that we can't lose sight of, and I appreciate that you said that, Lexi, that God literally wants to be involved in your day-to-day decision-making because he knows what you need better than you do, and he'll empower you to succeed in it. Right? Dale Lehman talked about this, that your, your life becomes more efficient when you're abiding in Christ. Right? You make better decisions, you're more efficient, you get more done, because you're leaving everything in his hands. And that's what this really is about. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel learned how to abide in Jesus. That's basically what they did. And this is why I think it's so important for us to not ignore the fact that our daily consecration and time with him is so essential in this shaping and abiding process, right? It's so essential to that. Lewis. And no, I just wanted to say that as, as I was saying, I was walking this morning and I was asking God, and yesterday, you know, why does he love me so much? You know, after, you know, so many things we can do to not push him away. Sometimes we may do the wrong thing unconsciously and or consciously and we repent. And I believe that God has equipped us each with a unique gift that he knows that he could use us with. And, and that with that saying that at the end times is, is why we're here. Because God has created us uniquely for that, to express that gift. And we're not perfect. And it's like you said, um, you were saying before the break, that God would equip us and he will, as long as we abide in him mm-hmm. and we give God all him. And it's hard for me to, uh, it's hard for me sometimes because I love God so much that I'm like, why? You know, I keep saying, why, why would you even want to use me? I mean, I'm never, I'm never, I don't even deserve this. And it's amazing how his love is and it continues on. And I just wanted to share that. Amen. Lexi. I just have one other, one other thing because you keep, God's definitely speaking to you because you keep, um, you said something else again that reminded me of something that connected to what I was saying as well. Um, in high school, I, I really kind of started to understand more of that God can be involved in literally everything like you were saying, like, and and it's so cool to see that, like playing game of baseball, um, like playing with your fidget spinner, like just really super random things. God can be involved in everything and you can like just talk to him about everything as well, if that makes sense. Like I, 
a story I used to always use whenever I'd mention that to people like, I don't know for what situation, I'd be like, you know, like I, I prayed to God about my Tide Pods because they weren't breaking well in my, in my laundry. So I was like, Lord, you know, please help us to work. And, and then when you said the whole thing about Dale Lehman saying that, um, you know, to abide in Christ, that's what Daniel and his friends were doing, what Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were doing. I don't know, it, it kind of clicked in my head, involving God on everything is abiding in Christ. Yes. That's that, that that's like, that's the connection, that's the definition. So that really connected in my head, so I really appreciate that, because I really found that in, in my high school years, which is very crucial. And so now kind of seeing how it connects to back then is really cool for me. One, because it's encouraging to see that God is helping me understand that. But now, obviously, it just, you know, kind of clicks. So I appreciate that. Yeah, that, that God is close at hand. That And actually, that's in the E.T. John sermons that we're reading, right? As we're going through the E.T. 9, um, 1893 John Conference sermons, he talks about the fact that we should be pleading for the very presence of Jesus. The presence of Jesus is available to us and can empower us in such amazing ways and beautiful ways. So this is the type of experience that God wants for you. To, to not just think like, oh man, I sure hope God stands for me then. Well, the reason why you would believe that God is going to stand for you then is when you realize how God's standing for you right now. Are you starting to kind of wrap your mind around this? That God is, is present and at hand in everything you're doing now. And the more we wrap our minds around that, the more we're going to want to make decisions that would honor Him, because He's here, right? But two, the more we're going to call on Him for strength and power and help in those day-to-day decisions. And we will believe that God will stand for us then because we have a life history of God standing for us before then. Does that make sense? You're building a testimony to convince yourself in that moment that God will be here for me when it matters the most. So God doesn't want you to fail. and He's not setting you up to fail. Yeah? That's really, really important for us. Okay. Now... I want to share two stories with you that have really helped me in, in kind of just understanding how much God is for us in this process of, of a crisis to come. So when I worked at Heritage Academy for two and a half years, the last year I was there, I was doing Bible work at a local church. I was kind of unofficially serving as like an elder. Well, I was officially an elder, but kind of unofficially serving as an associate pastor, elder, Bible worker at this church. And I was teaching junior Bible first period, Monday through Friday at the academy. I lived right down the street from it, and then um, would go do Bible work the rest of the day. So I knew that there was a storm coming. Where we lived in Tennessee was kind of like northeastern Tennessee. It's halfway between Nashville and Knoxville off of Interstate 40. And we were right on that line where it could be snow in Kentucky up above us, or it could be, you know, uh, like rain below us in further south in Tennessee or Alabama. But we would get like the ice. You know, and sometimes snow, sometimes rain. Like, we were right on that line um, because we were on, on the, the Cumberland Plateau, which is higher elevation. And so I'm working at Heritage Academy, and it's a Sunday. And I knew that the weather was supposed to be bad that week. There's going to be a potential ice storm. And the Spirit of God spoke to me. And this is why this is so important, that when you develop a relationship with God where you're communing with Him regularly in His Word, and you're communing with Him regularly in prayer, you learn to actually recognize and hear his voice throughout the course of the day. And God speaks to you about things. He he helps give you insight and wisdom in, in a Bible study that you're giving. Things you didn't plan on saying, God puts something in your heart and you say that. And it was perfectly relevant, but you had never thought of it before until that moment. Where you're preaching a sermon and it happens. Where you're just you're driving to someone's uh, house to give a Bible study, but someone else has put on your heart... And you stop and you, you text that person to say, hey, it's one you know I'm praying for you. And the response is, you have no idea what I'm going through. And the timing of that was just perfect. And it just ministers to them and blesses them in a way that only God can explain. Right? The Spirit of God does engage with you and interact with you throughout the course of the day. And to learn to recognize and hear His voice is so, so, so important. And prioritizing getting to know Him now is what's going to see you through whenever things go down. So I had, I had committed in my heart, I don't know, in 2009, 2008 or 2009, I think around August of 2009, that time with God was not an option. That was at 11 years ago, nearly. And it was the most intelligent and life course altering decision I'd ever made, apart from giving my life to Jesus. That time with God would not be an option. I don't care what time my flight is. I don't care how late I stay up in the morning and the evening. Time with God is not optional. 
and no one's telling me I have to do this. No one yelled at me and said, do your devotions or did you do your devotions? I never had that experience. And I've met many young people who have, unfortunately. But it was just an internal abiding view and understanding of reality that I, it's not because I'm holy or righteous or good. It's because I desperately need Jesus. I knew that I could not function without Jesus. And there has been one time in 11 years where I didn't start my day with God. Once. And this isn't boasting or bragging. It's not the point. I saw my need, and it has driven the way I prioritize my time. I'm not better than anybody. But the one day, and it was because I had moved to a new area, and I'm, it was bad. Like, this house was super inefficient. Electric bills were just through the roof. The fireplace only let heat go up the chimney. It didn't really send a whole lot out into the house. I'm using, you know, electric heaters. It's just, just really, really expensive. I was on this AmeriCorps job, so I didn't get paid all that much. And so when I first moved to this joint, there's no gas yet in the house. So there was no shower curtain, and there was no hot water. I didn't really have a way to cook food properly. I didn't have a microwave or toaster or anything like that. Like I had like a griddle or something. And just a kind of a really bad scenario when I first moved in there. And I think I was preparing to heat water to get ready for, you know, to basically put cold water in the bathtub and then boil water on the saucepan, right, multiple times until the water was tolerable to take a bath before I went to work. And in doing that, I forgot to read. And I get to work that day, and like nothing's going right. I can't think straight. I'm bumping into stuff. Like just nothing seems to be working. And I was driving for an appointment for something. And I remember thinking to myself, what is going on to... Wait a minute. I didn't have time with God today. So I pulled over in a hotel parking lot and I read and my day got better from then on. But I noticed just in that day, that's the only case study I have, is that the one day in 11 years, the day was just a disaster. Like nothing seemed right, nothing felt right. It's because I was blowing through my day without God as if he didn't exist and just forgot to prioritize time with him. And that doesn't mean that God leaves us for dead. Obviously, I didn't get in a car accident or die or anything else. But my point is that I, I made a hard and fast commitment, come what may. And I'm so thankful that God in supernatural power has enabled me to stand on that. Because me as a, as a weak, broken, sinful, fleshly human being, I don't prioritize my life like that naturally. And I've heard people say, you know, that like they put down the bottle for the last time when they prayed a prayer of surrender to God, or they put down the drugs for the last time, or they walked away from this or walked away from that. I can only attest that this was a supernatural phenomenon that took place in my life that reset my priorities in such a way that no matter how I felt at any point in time, in the morning or in the evening for the last 11 years, God put that just burning desire in my heart to be with Him, to commune with Him, and to give Him something. And it has changed my life. And when you learn to recognize the voice of God, you recognize the voice of God, right, when he speaks. So on this Sunday, I knew a storm was coming. And the Spirit of God spoke to me so clearly. Move all your firewood. Go buy groceries. Buy bottled water. And get gas for the generator. God just convicted me so strongly and spoke to me so clearly. And so that Sunday... There was firewood stacked in this big uh, open, had like a roof. So there was like the garage, and on the back side of the garage, there was this big tin roof that was covered with a whole bunch of firewood. And it was seasoned, it hadn't been used for a couple years. And so um, I, I, I load as much as I can under the covered porch outside of where the wood stove is. And the wood stove didn't require electricity, and it heated the whole cathedral. It was like a, it's like a really nice log cabin house. The lower level living room and then near the kitchen and then the loft area which is where my bedroom was and then there's another bedroom and a bathroom and like a little like mini living room type area up there too all that was perfectly heated the master bedroom wasn't because it was on the other side of the stairs but i get all that stuff together i buy gas for the generator i get all the food and what ends up happening is like a quarter inch if not more of ice falls on monday and they basically are telling people, hey, you need to be careful. Like, don't really get out on the roads right now. It's just not good. Because, I mean, in Tennessee, they don't have tons of salt like they do in Chicago, right? Like, they have enough salt to get a few batches, and that's it. And they just 
you know, hope not to die in the meantime. So I don't think I was able to go to Bible studies Monday or Tuesday because the roads weren't good because it stayed that cold. And then it happens again that Friday. No, I think I, I did do some studies on Monday and Tuesday, um, maybe even during that week. But Friday night, it's going to get worse because that ice didn't really go away in a lot of places. And it's going to have even more later in the week. There's another like half inch of ice that falls Friday night. My car literally looked like it was welded to the ground by ice. Because just like freezing rain that just kept falling and falling. And it would have like icicles and then more would just drip down and it would just get taller and taller and taller. And so I knew it was going to be bad. The Spirit convicted me again that plan on staying the night at the academy. Even though I literally could walk to the place I was staying. It was like two miles um, in the subdivision right across from the academy. But um, I, I bring a change of clothes. I bring what I need for that whole day. I preach Friday night. And then the power goes out. And it was the craziest thing. The power was gone for six days in winter. Six full days. There's no power. And that means in some places there's no water because it takes water to pump. It takes power to pump water up into the towers to then gravity feed down to people's houses. So for six days there's no power. And um, But Saturday morning, when I wake up, it's this eerie sound of Kush. Trees are just snapping and falling all over the place because all this freezing rain would, would just add more and more and more weight to the branches and they would just snap and fall to the ground. That's what led to power outages because trees were falling all over the place. The academy, um, Heritage Academy, cut their way into Monterey, the town that, they're, that they live in, down in the country, so it's outside of the town. Monterey is a small community anyway, but they live out in the country further outside of that. Heritage Academy by themselves cleared eight miles of highway to get into the city. They do disaster preparedness stuff. That's what my background was. And they did it before I got there, and that's why I got hired there initially was to do that work. And, and then teach Bible. So they cut out the highway by themselves to get in so that people could get in and out, and they helped first responders and set up distribution points and so forth. But Saturday night, someone tried to drive me to the house where I was staying, and it was like a war zone. Trees are down, power lines are down. Like I've never seen it like this in my life. And so we try one way, we drive through a ditch. We still have like two blocks away, and I just walk the rest of the way. But I had everything I needed for that whole six days. I had plenty of water, I had plenty of food, I had a generator that ran the pump uh, for the well to bring water into the house. It powered like a couple light bulbs and a refrigerator, so that was able to keep going, and that was it. And they had like a tankless water heater that was gas powered. So it powered that too. So I was able to have hot water. Like I, I, I was faring much better than most people. And there were some, uh, some Adventist family that lived in the neighborhood. They lost everything. Like they had this propane um, heated fireplace to heat the whole house. And they used up all their propane pretty quickly. So I brought them over to stay at the house where I was. They stayed in the upper loft area. And then I stayed in the master bedroom and froze. <laughs> um, I tried the whole like clay pot with little tea light candles heating thing. It didn't work. It was a disaster. Um, but I had, you know, good outdoor camping gear, sleeping bag stuff to, to survive. But they were able to stay for like the five or six days to be able to have their needs provided for because of the provision that I had made that God told me what to do. We had plenty of propane in the big tank outside. And I was able to just focus on ministering to people, blessing them and helping them. I was doing, I think the morning, um, I was doing the chapel talks that next morning or the next week in the morning. So I just walked to the academy or I drive, I think, to the edge of the academy because you couldn't even get down and up the, the, the road they had there. Um, so I just parked at the top, walked over, walked back, did my Bible class, and then I just you know, call people. And eventually I was able to go, even though the roads got cleared, there was no power still for those full six days. So I was able to go visit people, do in-home visitations, bring people food. And God just made it so clear to me during that season that this is how it's going to work. God, God will speak to his people. He will make it clear to them what they need to do. And notice, when I bought all this stuff, it wasn't for self-preservation. It was to ensure that I didn't have to worry about me so I could focus on helping other people, right? I was able to adopt a family of a husband, a wife, two kids, and a baby. So it was like five people. 
And they, they had no worries whatsoever. They were able to have a safe, warm place to be, and I could focus on investing in other people and ministering to my church members and people I was giving Bible studies to, bringing them soup. And it was such a blessing to see this during this time. And I did the math, and it was like probably about 200 bucks that I spent on a gas can, on food, on water, and gas for the gas can. And I kid you not, the day that the power came back on, I preached at my local church that Sabbath. And after I preach, this guy comes up to me, one of the elders, and he shakes my hand. I think it was a deacon, actually. He shakes my hand, and there's something in his hand, and he says, someone told me to give this to you. And I put it in my pocket. And when I get home later that day, you know what it was? Literally, two $100 bills. Every amount of money that I spent to prepare for that crisis, I got all that money back. And I was free to be able to minister to others and make a difference. And it was just so clear to me, this is what God is going to do. But that never would have happened had I didn't know how to hear the voice of God for myself. Right? I was spending time, and, and I'm not perfect by any means, but my point is that I was learning and prioritizing being in communion with God and abiding in Christ. And when I did that, Christ told me what to do, where to go, and that led to me being of the greatest service, and I didn't have to worry about me, right? I was doing better than most people. I had hot water, food, refrigerator, a way to cook food because it was a propane stove. And if we're communing with God and giving our day-to-day -day decisions to Him, we will know what to do and where to go. This experience taught me that. And we'll be ready and we'll be able to help others in need as we will, as well. And that's, yeah, you just can't overlook that. And this crisis has been one that, uh, the most recent one with the coronavirus, has kind of challenged me in different ways because in my mind, I've had moments during this where I thought I of all people should know better. Maybe you've had some of those moments where things are going on. Uh, I mean, we're, we're in the country, but we're five minutes from Walmart. I can get whatever I want. There's still power, there's still water. But this has dramatically changed the way that people do life. And there have been moments where I found myself being so self-absorbed and so frustrated and ashamed of myself. And it's really upset me that I thought that I would be someone different in the midst of a crisis like this and would be more prepared and more outward facing. But yet I've seen sides of me where I realized that I'm selfish. Right? And I've actually heard a lot of people saying this recently, that God's speaking to them on the topic of selfishness during this crisis. But one of the things that happened to me, we've covered this in one of our classes, actually a couple times, on my journey into depression, probably, I was just thinking about it this morning, I think it started around January-ish of 2015. And for about three years is when I dealt with that. And that was right before I started being involved in public ministry and traveling and preaching in a bunch of places and doing stuff. And I, I encountered a, a crushing, bitter disappointment whenever I felt that God was promising and leading in a certain area. And that, in the midst of what eventually would become radical poverty and discouragement while in ministry, all compiled together to just really crush me out for a long season. But before that season happened, when I was living at Heritage Academy, I was militant in having time with God on my walks in the morning. Right? I'd have my time to read, but then I'd walk and pray for other people. It didn't matter what was going on. Rain, shine, sleet, snow, ice. Didn't change any of that. And again, it was just something that God placed within my heart. It's not a natural thing that I had. But I was militant in that. I'd pray for the houses of the people who lived you know, where I was walking on the campus and praying for our students and praying for friends and other people. And guys, I was seeing God do amazing and powerful and wonderful things for people for people's marriages, for people's children, and other things that I could not give it. The only thing that can explain it is the fact that God heard, that God is good, and that prayer truly does move the hand of God in powerful and amazing ways. And I, I began a lifestyle of being a man of prayer and faith, and it changed my life, that experience. It began like 2013, 2014, but once 2015 came, and I moved to Illinois. I was still having time with God. I was still walking there for a season. But then just life happened. And I would still read, but my time 
of like quality, real, raw time with God on those walks started to get messed with. And that, that trajectory continued for a good chunk of my public ministry. And God was still working, even my depression and discouragement and loneliness and frustration and radical poverty. God was blessing people. He was helping people. He was ministering to them. And I praise him for that. But it was like part of me died inside. And it was a little perplexing to me that God was using me so powerfully in public ministry and these messages were changing so many people's lives while I felt like part of me was dead. How is it that God is using me in a season in which I feel unusable, right? I'm hurting, I'm dealing with challenges, I'm messing up and things. And you think, God, how is it that you would be so merciful? And the point is, it's never been about you. How awesome you are or whatever is not the issue. The point is, it's a spirit of God that ministers to people. It's not your charisma, whether you had it or not that day. Ministry is and success in ministry is solely because of the Spirit of God and God's love for people. And He will use anything He can to bless people, even broken, hurting ministers. In fact, He delights to do so because that undeserved goodness of God does something for the broken minister too. And so the messages I was sharing with people and the tears I was crying when I would preach, they were real. I wasn't faking it, but there was, there was just this sense that something was wrong. Something had died inside. But I did know this much. Don't stop communing with him. Don't stop serving him. Don't stop any of that. So I kept praying. I kept reading. I kept giving Bible studies. I kept preaching. I kept teaching. Even though something just didn't feel right, I couldn't understand why the clouds wouldn't leave. And I knew God well enough to know that God is good. That God loves me personally and individually. I knew that. And so I never doubted his goodness, but I did wonder why the darkness won't leave. And beginning around the spring of 2018, that started to change. My functionality began to increase and things started to thaw out and get better. And over time, and there's, there's a message in Audioverse about this, it's called When You Lose Your First Love, that explains more of that story and how I got out of that. And I've shared a lot of that with you guys in our classes. But one of the things that came to mind, and Dwight talked about this when he was teaching us on preaching, when Dwight Nelson was here, on Helmut Hobbiel's book um, called Steps to Personal Revival. And the thing that God opened my eyes to through reading that book was the power of praying God's word back to him. And that has been a massive healing experience for me to have created this document. That I've got a bunch of Bible promises and spirit of prophecy quotes I just read them verbatim, and it's like cognitive behavioral therapy. God is rewriting my mind and rewiring my mind to believe the truth in the areas where I've been believing lies, to heal me in areas where I've been broken, to speak life into areas where I've died. And so that time that I used to spend walking and praying for other people, now I'm spending that hour or so going through this promise list with a list of people at the end, and, and I've been fairly good about that and being consistent in that, even though we have a very early schedule here. But those walks have died. When I first came here to Pennsylvania, I would go on these runs and just agony. It's like these counseling sessions when I was going through some difficult seasons. And God saw me through it. I'd run under the, under the stars here at night. It was wonderful. But I wasn't even doing that anymore. Once the core program started, all this, I was in 30 locations last year recruiting, preparing for the program. It was in 30 locations a year before that. Like, all this travel's messed up, my sleep schedule's messed up, my, my, my time. And my point is this, that the, the busyness and vicissitudes of life stole something from me. And the depression and, and the discouragement stole something from me. And that quality time I used to have in those walks, and that time in lifting up other people's needs in intercessory prayer, began to fade away. God was still working in my life. God was still working through me. God was still blessing me. This promise list has changed my life. And I'm a vastly different man than I was before the depression came in so many ways. But this last aspect of those walks, that time to agonize in prayer with God, I miss it. I don't know if you ever had those moments where there's someone or something in your life that your heart just longs for and misses desperately. 
maybe you've been away from a family member that you lost tragically or something else. There's just this, it's like there's this vacuum in your heart and your mind that you just have a heart longing. I've had that for nearly three years. And, well, that was 2005. Yeah, 15. I don't know how long it's been. Probably about two to three years where that regular time on those walks has been taken from me and I allowed it to be taken from me. And it's been frustrating. I was reading my devotions last week. I don't remember where it was. Uh, where God promised, I think it's in Hosea. Um, I don't want to take up all your time as I'm trying to find it here, but um, let's see. Um, yeah, I think it was in Micah. Anyway, there's this illusion where basically in three days you're going to be revived. And last week, that was on Wednesday when I read that. Wednesday was a rough day for me. Um, Sabbath morning comes. And I, I've been going for longer walks with Buddy, like in the afternoon or other times, to try to have more of that with my puppy. But what happened to me Sabbath morning was like the clouds finally lifted. My functionality's been way better. I'm doing so much better than I was before, but it was still like something was missing in my experience. And Sabbath morning, that changed. And part of that has been tied to the fact that I've been reading this book. It's a book by Jim Simbley. He's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Uh, not an Adventist guy, but his stuff on prayer is amazing. And I, his story of his daughter is what inspired me. But he's been talking about the importance of prayer. And Dwight was talking about it. Dale Lehman was talking about it. And I used to be a man of prayer and faith. And I've not been a man who's not believed that in recent years in the midst of the challenges. But part of that, that, that part of my identity, some of it has died. It's not been the same since this discouragement came, and I've missed that. And God did something so precious for me this weekend. In the midst of this crisis, there's been a lot of self-reflection about where I'm going in life, the decisions I want to make, the person I want to be. And through that, God's brought me to a place of being open and ready to to re-engage in that and, and to prioritize that. And guys, it's been life-changing for me. Sabbath morning, I go for this long walk. Sunday, I went for this long walk. Today, I went, and I feel like I used to feel in that communion with God on those walks that I've missed desperately. And when, when you know God, you can never really run from Him. And I, I've gone through some pretty difficult stuff in recent weeks, and... Life comes at you, man. Stuff happens. The devil's real. And I got to a point literally last Wednesday where I was just thinking, like, Lord, I don't think I can do this anymore. Like, this is just too much for me. I'm not leaving God. I know better than that. But just there's certain aspects where you just want to lay down and quit. To believe certain things, to hope for certain things, to fight certain battles. You just get to a point where your human strength runs out. You ever been there? Yeah? And I, I hit one of those walls on Wednesday, and I just wondered, like, Lord, what do I even do? And I just wanted to run, and then God reminds me of Elijah, like, you can run, and I'll even give you food and water to help you run. But I can chase you down, and I'm going to ask you that question. What are you doing here? And, you know, I've preached that a billion times, so I know. But, man, the struggle can be real. And... And then, and then the shame on top of that, that there's a world cri a global crisis going on, but yet you're not who you need to be right now in the midst of that crisis. And that brings shame and frustration on top of that. And I, I get back to my room, I get back to the house, and uh, in my devotions, God just speaks so clearly to me. Return to me. I'll even help you return to me, and in three days you're going to experience revival. He spoke so clearly. And I was reminded of Elijah, that Elijah left and ran at the very moment when God was about to bring the biggest breakthrough. And all White tells us that um, had Elijah stood his ground, Jezebel would have been judged, Ahab would have been converted, and the nation would have been brought to revival. And instead he runs. And... 
That's the problem. Whenever you commit your life to ministry and the truth is you know too much. And when you know God, not just know about Him, when you know Him, you can't run. And I knew it. And so, and then a friend of mine calls that morning. I didn't want to answer the phone, but I did. And I explained to him the things that were going on and how God was leading, leading into that and what happened and everything else. And I was just reminded of the fact that this is what's true. I can't do anything else. Or to who else am I going to go, Lord? Even if I don't understand all of what's happening right now, like, you're all I have. And he was so good to me and just wooing me and loving me back to himself. I had a session with my therapist the next day. It was just amazing. And then Sabbath morning, he did exactly what he said. And I felt like the full version of me, but better for the first time. And I don't even know how long. Because this process that God's brought me on through this darkness taught me a lot about myself. I had to fall upon the rock and be broken while in ministry to truly understand my weaknesses, to truly understand who I really was, the things I was believing, the wounds of my past, to deal with that stuff, to put me on the vantage ground for what's to come. And it may take that for us. It may take one of those soul-crushing disappointments and challenges to bring us to that point to finally realize that I don't have what it takes, that I'm not who I think I am and I desperately need Jesus. No matter how much success you've had in ministry, no matter how many people you've touched, you need Jesus, and that will never change. And I feel better now than I did before the depression came. And I've said that before. I even said it in um, When You Lose Your First Love. But there were still certain aspects of me, because I feel more whole, because God's healing me from the wounds of my past and stuff. But now, that like fire and faith and expectation and that expectancy, that's being revived in my experience. And Jim's book has been amazing. It's called Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire. He tells a story that I had heard from Paul Vagoya talk about it. That's how I heard about it. Where this guy, his daughter went wayward. Um, he's a pastor of a church. The church was a dump, right? His, his father-in-law asked him to consider pastoring this church. that um, was just a disaster. It was in downtown Brooklyn. People, it's just, you know, drug addicts would come in. There were hardly any people there. People would steal from the offering plate. Like, and he would just cry and cry. Thank God, we need you here. Like, this place is just falling apart. Like, why did you call me here? How are we going to pay our bills? Because it's not like the Adventist church where every pastor is paid the same no matter what. Like, this is the church pays you, and they don't even have any money. And so I just want to share some themes from this book that were really helpful for me to realize where I had kind of lost my bearings. Um, and it's been so helpful for me. I just want to close with this idea because, guys, the coming crisis is going to necessitate having a true consecration to God, knowing Him for yourself, communing with Him, and it's going to require knowing how to pray and not just verbalize, Dear Jesus, thank you for sunshine. I mean learning how to cry out to God with your whole heart. God wants us to have a vibrant, real prayer life. And this is something he's bringing back to my experience. He says that God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Our weakness, in fact, makes room for his power. And Ella White actually alludes to this. She says our greatest argument in prayer is our need. But when we don't understand how weak we are and how much we need God... We don't pray in desperation. And we don't find true power in prayer until we get to that point. And that's what this mental health challenge has been for me. It's been the Laodicean message that I wasn't who I thought I was. I had a lot of issues, a lot of brokenness and selfishness and woundedness and loneliness. And that God was trying to set me free from that, but it took being broken before I could understand myself and then rebuild upon a better platform. And this restoring that communion I had with him in the prayer closet now is, is reviving that. And he just despaired during this church growth, uh, or during this church season when he first got there. He said, I despaired at the thought that my life might slip by without seeing God show himself mildly on our behalf. And maybe you've been there. Where you just feel like no matter what I do, I just don't think God's going to do it. How could, It's just impossible. I'm too broken. The situation is too impossible. God, how are you going to do this? And he says that God spoke so strongly to him in the midst of that. He said that if you and your wife will lead my people to pray and call upon my name, you will never lack for something fresh to preach. 
I will supply all the money that's needed, both for the church and for your family, and you will never have a building large enough to contain the crowns I will send in response. So the Spirit of God just spoke to him in that darkness. And boy, did that prove true. Jim decided that if this church was going to be successful, it wasn't going to be based upon his sermons. It's going to be upon the fact that we as a church pray. And he would regularly tell his church members, the most important meeting is Tuesday night prayer meeting. Not Sundays, not the sermon and the music, and they have a world-famous choir, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, that won multiple Grammys. He says, that's not why you need to be coming here. The most important time of the week is our prayer meeting. And out of that Tuesday night prayer meeting have been birthed so many miracles in the healing and growth of that church that seemed dead and, and, and like it was about to close when he first got there with a handful of people and drug addicts and so forth. They prayed and God worked. And they didn't just, dear Jesus, it would sure be nice if you, they prayed with their guts. They cried to God. And that's what happened. He says, I knew I'd heard from God, even though I'd not experienced some strange vision, nothing sensational or peculiar. God was simply, simply focusing on the only answer to our situation or anyone else's, for that matter. His word to me was grounded in countless promises repeated in the scriptures. It was the very thing that had produced every revival of the Holy Spirit throughout history. It was the truth that had made Charles G. Finney, Dwight L. Moody, A.B. Simpson, and other men and women mightily used of God. It was what I already knew, but God was now drawing me out, pulling me toward an actual experience of himself and his power. He was telling me that my hunger for him and his transforming power would be satisfied as I led my tiny congregation to call out to him in prayer. When you learn to truly pray with your whole heart, it changes everything. God had promised to provide and respond to our cries for divine help, and we were not alone. Attempting the impossible in a heartless world, God was present, and he would act on our behalf. And boy, did he. Over the years, things began to grow and grow and grow. They rented Radio City Music Hall. Like It's just been a totally different scenario. And they weren't doing some fancy church growth strategy. They just prayed but fervently cried out to God. If we call upon the Lord, he's promised in his word to answer, to bring the unsaved to himself, to pour out his spirit among us. And if we don't call on the Lord, he's promised us nothing, nothing at all. It's as simple as that. No matter what I preach or what we claim to believe in our heads, the future will depend upon our times of prayer. And um, I'm going to read a few more things here, and I want to close with something else with his, with his story of his daughter. this. Here we go. Listen to this. Prayer cannot be truly taught by principles and seminars and symposiums. It has to be born out of a whole environment of felt need. If I say I ought to pray, I will soon run out of motivation and quit. The flesh is too strong. I have to be driven to pray. And I think this is why so many people's devotional lives never get off the ground and never get off of life support because they think they ought to. They don't see their need. The only thing that gets me up in the morning to have that time with God or in the evening whenever it's been a long day is the fact that I understand my need. Not because I'm holy or pious or awesome or that I ought to. Those thoughts never run through my mind. It, it, it's as essential to me as life itself and breath itself. I can't not do it. I need this. And that itself can give you a lasting motivation. Does that make sense? It's that that brings out lasting and real motivation. And he says, the more we pray, the more we sense our need to pray. And the more we sense a need to pray, the more we want to pray. It begins that cycle that fans itself. And uh, he says... Uh, here. Charles Spurgeon once remarked that the best style of prayer is that which cannot be called anything else but a cry. And he talks about Moses from Mount Sinai calling on God uh, for the people's success. And he tells them in Deuteronomy, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Deuteronomy 4.7 The other nations may have had better chariots, better weaponry, but that wouldn't matter in the end. They didn't have what Israel had, a God who would respond when they called upon him. 
A note that there was no promised help from God if Israel ceased calling out to him. Only defeat and humiliation would follow. And he makes the point that the truth of the matter is the devil is not terribly frightened of our human efforts and credentials, but he knows his kingdom will be damaged when we lift up our hearts to God. This warfare is real, guys, and until we learn how to truly sense our need and cry out to God, we're not going to see what we're looking for. In Psalm 50 and verse 15, it says, Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. God desires praise from our lives, but the only way fresh praise and honor will come is as we keep coming to him in times of need and difficulty. Then he will intervene to show himself strong on our behalf, and we will know that he has done it. And in this coming crisis, that's what it's going to look like. Prayer begets revival, which begets more prayer. Then he tells the story about his own daughter. And um, I'll go back to that, but I want to read one more thing here. He says, The feature that's supposed to distinguish Christian churches, Christian people, and Christian gatherings is the aroma of prayer. It doesn't matter what your tradition or my tradition is. The house is not ours anyway. It's the Father's. Whenever Jesus says, and when he's quoting, that my, house, my Father's house should be a house of prayer to all nations, but you've made it a den of thieves. It wasn't a house of sermons. It wasn't a house of worship services and song services and long. It was a house of prayer. That's what God longed for it to be, and that's to be our biggest, biggest emphasis. What does it say about our churches today that God birthed the church in a prayer meeting, and yet prayer meetings today are almost extinct Right? We're coming to worship ourselves many times. I want a sermon that I want to hear. I want worship songs that I want to hear. I want the children's story to be shorter. I wish they'd turn the air up. I wish they'd turn the air down. You're in my pew. Many people are worshiping themselves on Sabbath instead of realizing that this is a chance and a time to come to God's house of prayer, to hear the word of God spoken to his people, to bring life and healing and freedom and if God's people are praying to hear a word from God because they have a felt need, the preacher will preach better sermons. And if they're praying for this pastor in that area, he'll preach better sermons. And he says, am I the only one who gets embarrassed when religious leaders in America talk about having prayer in public schools? We don't even have that much prayer in many churches. Out of humility, you would think we would keep quiet on that particular subject until we practice what we preach in our own congregations. Right? You got you got super politicized pastors saying we need prayer in our schools. I'm not saying we don't need prayer in our schools. You don't even have people show up for your prayer meeting. Why would I listen to you? Yeah? Heavy stuff, man. Convicting stuff. What are we doing about this? Americans designate one day a year as a national day of prayer. Do we have any right to ask mayors and senators to show up for a special event? with the television cameras rolling, if we don't have regular prayer meetings in our churches, if praying is that important, then why don't we do it every week? And uh, he says, I'm well aware that we don't get everything we ask for when we pray. We have to ask according to God's will, but let us not use theological dodges to avoid the fact that we often go without things God wants us to have right now, today, because we fail to ask. Too seldom we... Do we get honest enough to admit, Lord, I can't handle this alone. I've just hit the wall for the 32nd time, and I need you. The old words of the hymn, the, hymns, the, the words of the old hymn ring true. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. God has chosen prayer as his channel of blessing. He spread a table for us with every kind of wisdom, grace, and strength because he knows exactly what we need. But the only way we can get it is to pull up to the table and taste and see that the Lord is good. We're not seeing the answers. We're not seeing the freedom. We're not seeing the revival. We don't have a change in desire because we are not desperately coming to him and asking. God, um, pulling up to that table is called the prayer of faith. In other words, God doesn't tell us to pray because he wants to impose some sort of regimen on us. This is not a system of legalism. Ian e. Bounds wrote, Prayer ought to enter into the spiritual habits, but it ceases to be prayer when it's carried on by habit only. Desire gives fervor to prayer. The soul cannot be listless with some great desire when some great desire fixes and inflames it. Strong desires make strong prayers. The neglect of prayer is a fearful token of dead spiritual desires. 
The soul is turned away from God when desire after him no longer presses into the closet, and there can be no true praying without desire. God says to us, pray, because all I ha- because I have all kinds of things for you, and when you ask, you will receive. I have all this grace, and you live with scarcity. Come unto me, all you who labor. Why are you so rushed? Why are you running now? Everything you need, I have. If the times are indeed as bad as we say they are, if the darkness in our world is growing heavier by the moment, if we're facing spiritual battles right in our own homes and churches, then we are foolish not to turn to the one who supplies unlimited grace and power. He is our only source, and we are crazy to ignore him. And then he tells a story about his daughter. She, she wandered, got obsessed with this guy, ends up dating him, won't tell her parents, and for two and a half years they go through this nightmare where their daughter is just lying to them, manipulating them. She ends up getting pregnant by this guy without being married, and it's just a disaster. It has the kid, tries to use the kid to bait her parents to, you know, to take her back in, but then she just lies again. And eventually God told Jim, he said, Jim, no more speaking to her. No more talking to her. Do not see her. And he said, just talk to me about it. You tried yelling and crying, manipulation, you used money, you told other people. He says, just talk to me about it, and you'll see what I'm going to do. And when I do it, you're going to go around the world and tell people what I did for your daughter and show them that God hears and answers prayer. And he was at his wit's end. He said his wife had a hysterectomy at that time and kind of lost her mind. Her daughter was lost, and, and Satan was just beating her down with discouragement, telling her, look, Satan's already taken one. He's going to take your other kids, too. And she just doesn't want to live anymore. She wants to take her own life. And he's just thinking, what do I do? I'm trying to start other churches, a pastor church. My wife isn't the woman I married. My daughter's wayward. He said he'd hit rock bottom. He had nothing else to offer. And he said one night at like one in the morning in the living room, God told him, I'm bringing Chrissy back. I'm bringing her back. I will do it. And so he keeps praying. And he chose to believe when he walked away didn't talk to her, didn't say anything to her, didn't talk to anyone about her. He chose to believe that God would do it. And he said one Tuesday night, uh, he knew that she was living in the city again, staying with one of his church members. And they had the prayer meeting. And someone sent a note up to him and said, Jim, Pastor, I think this is the night we're supposed to pray for your daughter. And um, he said he knew the woman was, was, was spiritual and was a woman sensitive to the Spirit of God. And so he said at this stage, his tear ducts were dry. You cry so much, there's just nothing left. He just cried nonstop for two and a half years. He said it would be, he would leave on a Sunday morning. He would beat his wife to church. He would leave, that sounds terrible. Uh, he, he, would get, he would get to church before his wife did. Um, and so he would leave early before she left the house. And he said he'd pray for, he would cry for 25 minutes driving into church. They have like four services there. He'd preach his guts out and then go cry in his office. Compose himself and preach his guts out and go cry in his office. And this went on for a long time. And the Tuesday night prayer meeting says he had no more tears left to cry. He would cry, but just no tears would come out. And he hands the note. He says, people, here's the situation. He hadn't told the church because he's he's ministering to thousands and thousands of people in the inner city. I'm there for them. They're not there for me. And so he he never brought it up. But he said, here's the situation. Chrissy's lost. She thinks up is down and down is up. She's lost. She's far from God. And we need to pray for her. And he said, the church turned into a labor room. Not in some crazy Pentecostal sense, but just people were crying out to God, pleading with them for his daughter. And I forget how long that went on, 45 minutes, an hour, or whatever. But he said, a time came in that meeting where they just sensed that God had heard. The Spirit of God brought peace into that room after just crying out to him. And he knew that God had heard. They closed the meeting and he went home. His wife wasn't there and he gets home and his wife says, how'd it go? And he says, it's over, Carol. She said, what's over? He said, it's over. Chrissy's coming back. What do you mean? How do you know? He said, if you were there and you heard them praying, if there's a God in heaven, Chrissy's coming back. And he said, like 70 hours later, he's shaving upstairs in the bathroom, and his wife plows into the bathroom and says, Chrissy's downstairs. He goes downstairs. She's crying on the kitchen floor. He says, as soon as he looked in her eyes, 
he saw his daughter was back. He knew it. She said, God, I, she says, Daddy, I've, I sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against Mommy. I've sinned against myself. I'm sorry. I repent. And they, they dedicated that baby that she'd had out of wedlock. They dedicated that baby the next Sunday. And she was back. But he, he said, she, well, she asked him. She said, who, who was praying for me last night? Tuesday night, who was praying for me, Daddy? He says, what do you mean, Chris? Just tell me. Who was praying for me? She knew. And what happened was she was in the room, this church member, the church member was at, at, the, at the prayer meeting. And while she was in the room, she had this like spooky vision. She's laying down in bed, and the baby's in the crib, and this dark presence comes into the room. It was just hideous to look at. And it swirls over her bedpost. And then this, this presence of light comes into the room. And the darkness speaks to the light and says, I have her, pointing to Chrissy, and says, I'm going to take her too, pointing to the baby. And it started to go over towards the crib. And then she says she had like this dream or this vision where she was going down this huge abyss that just had no end. And she says that God stopped her. He stopped her from going off the abyss. And instead of yelling at her daddy, he told me that he loved me and still had a plan for my life. And that I could come back. And it changed everything. In that moment, that, that spell she was under, being obsessed with this guy and everything else, was gone. The chains were broken, and she was fully free. Now she's a minister's wife, has three kids. She's a pastor's wife in Chicago, working for the Lord. But, and she, she mentioned, or she tells her version of the testimony, that her husband told her, you just never know what prayer is going to put somebody over the edge. You just never know. Because imagine, when you pray for two and a half years and nothing seems to change, you could be tempted to give up. But that Tuesday night, when God's people cried out to him, not just, Jesus, please bring Chrissy home, they sensed a need. There was urgency. There was pathos. They prayed with their hearts. She came home. And she stayed home and is doing work for the Lord even now. And reading this book has just been kind of, it's reminding me of the reality that I used to live before the darkness came. And God in his great mercy is healing and reviving me and bringing me back to a richer experience I had than before the darkness came. And he can do that for all of us, guys. I, I'm assured of that. And in the crisis that's to come, we're going to need an experience that is real, that is abiding, that isn't just tepid, dear Jesus, thank you for sunshine, Christianity. I'm thankful you're praying at all. It's going to take more than that, guys. And you can have that now. You can cultivate that relationship now by committing time to him. Substantive, real, daily time. As you're quarantined, don't waste it on video games and nonsense like Take substantive time. I'm not saying you have to pray all day. Do whatever you want. But just commit during this season to develop a new pattern of how you want to live and who you want to be by God's grace and God's strength. Now is the perfect time. right? Whenever you're realizing that, that you can't access things that you used to be able to access as easily, when the world is changing, God's trying to get our attention that things are changing and I want you to be ready this is not the crisis, but it's to prepare you for the crisis. Let's get to know each other better. Why don't you and I go for a walk? Let's talk about what's on your heart. Why don't you search my word for promises and store it in your heart? Now is the time, guys. Now is the time. God wants you to be ready, and every resource that you will need is available to you so that you can be ready. But will you take advantage of it? That's the question. God is more than willing. And he and his mercy would not have you living at this stage in earth's history if he didn't intend for you to be ready. But will you take advantage of it? So that's the question. Um, I'd like to close in prayer and then we'll kind of open up to discourse and discussion. But God, I just want to thank you that you love us so much that you see something in us that we don't see in ourselves and particularly in a moment of crisis where many of us have not been who we wish we would be when the big crisis comes. Lord, I pray that we would take this time to earnestly address that by seeking you. 
True power in prayer is found in seeing our need. And Lord, we recognize we're nothing without you. We don't have what it takes. We need you. So we ask that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. We have idols. There are other things in this world and other people in this world that have our affections more than you. And we recognize that that is wrong. It's not helpful, and we want that to change. But we also recognize that we're not capable of changing ourselves. So God, would you do it? Would you do in, through, and for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves? Save us, O God, we pray. Revive us, O God, we pray. And send your Spirit to bring life into us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.